G'day, I'm Ann Jones and this is Off Track. Take a listen to this little bit of magic. You have to get up early, but in those mornings like we had today, just a, a magical morning of getting out here in the dark to the call of sooty owls. Before the sooty owls had gone to sleep, the lyrebirds were singing. As they woke up, we had you know, five or six males all around us. It was an incredible, incredible morning. What bird has the most elaborate, the most complex, the most beautiful song in the world? The superb lyrebird. Deep in the forest, amongst the tree ferns, is Lyrebird. He is acknowledged the finest vocalist amongst the large birds of the world. Yes, the superb Lyrebird is a great singer. The Australian Lyrebird is said to be able to imitate almost any sound at all. Oh, yeah. But if I hear one more clip of Chook the Lyrebird doing a drill... I think I'm going to scream. This is the first of a three-part series on Off Track with podcast extras too, smashing through the myths of the lyrebird and replacing them with the real story, which is actually even better than the natural history fantasy. So sit back, close your eyes and listen to the wonderful musical world of the lyrebird. I think for me, lyrebirds are endlessly fascinating species. Alex Maisie is a lyrebird person, and it started young. He grew up near one of the most famous lyrebird sites in all of Australia, Sherbrooke Forest outside Melbourne. And when he was little, he became so obsessed with the birds that he convinced his parents that he should be homeschooled so that he could spend his days following the birds around in the forest. Their song is completely captivating. It, it really is something that you never know what you'll hear in the mimicry. They're a beautiful bird. I just think they're a, the aesthetics of being out in the forest, looking at lyrebirds displaying and finding their nests and their, their whole... Even the females are just a, a fabulous bird to see. They've got these incredible claws and big beady eyes. Um, they're very beautiful birds. Alex was not the first, nor would he be the last, to be bewitched by one of the biggest songbirds in the world. For as long as humans and lyrebirds have been around each other, there's been stories about these birds. Composer, musician and dancer Matthew Doyle, who identifies as Darwell, told this story to Radio Eye on the ABC in 1997. Darwell people believe that the, the lyrebird was, was the totem of their, of their people. Being the great mimic that it is, it's, that's like it can pick up any language. So it can speak all languages that it hears. I guess that sort of passed down to the people somehow and, and the people were able to speak languages from all different areas around Sydney. Of 
course, I was handed a story that was believed to be a Tharawal story as well, and it was a traditional or dreamtime story about the creation of the first lie bird called Wiradjurban. What happens with the story is that it goes through different stages of being first off a, a time of great drought where there's no water, no food and no animals and, and so on. So the people decided that they, they had to do something, they had to get help to break this drought. So they decided to go to a certain place, as a, a place of sacredness, to seek help, to perform a ceremony to, to maybe get the ancestral spirits to help break this drought. Balambi Nadu Balambi Dandridam Balambi Bawai Bubu Nagundu Balambi Bana Balambi Nadu Balambi So they go to this particular place and they paint up traditional style of paint up and uh, and then perform this ceremony to call on the ancestors, which is sing for rain. And instead of them getting rain, they get thunderclouds and lightning and the lightning causes fire. And it's from that fire that two people are separated, an, an old woman and a younger man. And subsequently the woman gets caught in the fire and dies in the fire. Then the next day the people wondered what had happened to this woman and they sort of realised that she got caught in the fire. But, you know, they didn't see her body anywhere. So the next day when all the smoke had cleared and, you know, it was, it was a sunny day, there was still no rain, a bird appears out of the bush and uh, it's a lyre bird and a lyre bird came out saying its name which was Wiradjurban and then the people had sort of realised that she had been taken by the fire and she's been transformed and, and given back to us as, as a lyre bird to be a, a teacher I, I suppose and a speaker of four languages. I think Lyre birds were fairly abundant in all of the Sydney region. They weren't just confined to the mountains where you find most of them now. A lot of lyre birds were slaughtered in the early years of settlement and their tail feathers were taken and put in museums and used in hats and attire. So the birds were sort of forced back, but I guess like like our people who also were forced off the land as well, the bird has survived as, as we have. And that's Matthew Doyle's music as well, from the album titled Lyrebird. There are several dreaming stories stretching right across the country on the eastern seaboard, and as soon as colonists arrived, they were also taking an interest in the amazing sounds that floated out at them from the undergrowth. The lyrebird features heavily in early natural history broadcast attempts as well, right through the decades. In fact, the first live broadcast of birdsong in Australia was of a lyrebird in 1931. The lyrebird. This isn't that broadcast, there's no record of that, but this is a 78 that was released of the birds in Sherbrooke Forest near Melbourne in 1933, courtesy of the Deakin University Library. The song of the lyrebird is the first recording ever made in the Australian bush of a wild bird in its natural surroundings. The kookaburra. 
The interest continued. A decade later, Anne Dreyer conducted Kindergarten of the Air in 1945. The lyrebird is very clever because he can sing all the songs of the other bush birds. Would you like to hear him? Listen. And in 53, naturalist Vincent Cerventi shows two American children around Australia in a radio play. Are you taking us back to a prehistoric forest, Uncle? <laughs> Not quite, Jim. I think you'll like the lyrebird. I hope we can find one. We're really stepping through the decades now to the 1960s when the now iconic current affairs ABC radio show AM first aired in 67. Here's what the audience heard. This is the ABC's new morning program, AM. Good morning, I'm Robert Peach. And every weekday morning from now on, we'll be taking a fresh look at the world, what it's talking about, what people in the news are doing. And it so happens that there's a little new Australian in the news this morning. Shush there, Robert Peach, listen. Grey morning light filtering through into a small clearing in the ferns and a proud father celebrating a history-making occasion. Right now I'm in the maximum security area, and I mean maximum security. The mother lyrebird is backing away ahead of me, her cheek pouches full of food as she edges towards the nest. It's an oval-shaped shaggy affair of twigs on the side of a tree about six feet above the ground. And just ahead of me now is the dark hole leading to the inside of the nest which houses this unique little Australian. And the very important little Australian that Mike Crudson was talking about, the first lyrebird to be bred in captivity under natural conditions, goes on view for the general public, at a safe distance of course, for the very first time today. And now let's look at the hard news. And some things never change at the ABC. AM said it was the first captive-born chick ever at Hillsville. And of course, someone from the audience called in who knew better. I want to make it quite clear that this is not the first occasion on which a lyrebird chick has been hatched in captivity. Mr Chisholm, how many lyrebirds have been bred in captivity? Alex Chisholm so was, of course, author of the Australian natural history classic Mateship with Birds. A chick. Now, is there any danger of lyrebirds becoming extinct in Australia? The answer in that case uh, should be in the negative at the present time. Had it been asked years ago, I would have said yes, there is a very grave danger. Uh, because in those days the lyrebirds were shot uh, to a most deplorable degree. Now... The only danger is uh, the clearing of its habitat for settlement. The fascination of the lyrebird runs deep for humans, from famous naturalists to kindergarten children. And of course, in art and literature, the lyrebird features heavily, like the first uniquely Australian ballet was choreographed by Robert Holtman. It was called The Display, and it's even on our coins. But... How much of that popular story that we repeat over and over again is true? No, not whipbirds, nor kookaburras. Think again. That's the extraordinary lyrebird, one of the greatest mimics in nature. What do we really know about lyrebirds? They're much, much more than their song. Alex Maisie, once obsessed as a kid in Sherbrooke Forest, is now obsessed as a scientist in Sherbrooke Forest and writing a PhD on lyrebirds as ecosystem engineers at La Trobe University in Melbourne. So when lyrebirds feed, they eat all the worms and invertebrates that they dig out of the soil. 
Um, they sometimes might even pick up uh, seeds and fungi. Um, but most of what they're looking for is living in the litter layer. So they have really big, powerful claws and they scratch through the litter, just randomly searching, um, searching for food. And they can actually uncover a, or disturb and displace a massive amount of soil. So this has been measured um, in the range of hundreds of tonnes per hectare. Uh, my measurements calculated 150 tonnes per hectare on average in our central Victorian forests. How did you calculate such a thing? <laughs> um, I, I buried little pots, basically, little um, draining buckets in the soil and I had transects of these randomly um, placed throughout the forest and uh, measured how much soil was moved into them and then I corrected for that the um, soil that was displaced by wind and gravity and um, other animals including invertebrates and crayfish like that sort of thing and um, by, by putting up little fences. So I fenced lyebirds out of some areas and uh, compared the two plots. And then, of course, you can extrapolate and express the um, amount of soil moved per by in tonnes per hectare. Oh, that's amazing, because I sort of initially had an image of you digging next to a lyrebird <laughs> <laughs> out in the field. Well, it gets, gets worse. Um, uh, of course, so with such a huge disturbance process, um, that presumably has ramifications for other organisms. So um, everything from fungi and um, bacteria living in the soil through to the invertebrates they eat. So my questions are, Do how do the lyrebirds influence those groups of other animals, other organisms, through that foraging. So to do that, with my little exclusion fences that I'd set up, I actually visit those fences, or have done for the last two years, every month, and uh, with a little three-pronged rake that's the same size as a lyrebird claw, I replicate lyrebird foraging in one of my plots. So this is doing the habitat alteration that the lyrebirds do, or as close as I can, um, without actually eating the invertebrates that are living there. And that's how I'm hoping to uh, get, gain an understanding of what lyrebirds are doing and how they influence those other organisms. The things you do for science, eh? <laughs> <laughs> I look like the grim reaper with my claw walking through the forest to scare all the kids away, that's for sure. So I know you're still studying and... Um, for your PhD, so you're not quite finished yet, but have you been able to reach any tentative conclusions about the lyrebirds' impact as ecological engineers? Uh, so far, I've found that it's very clear that they do change the habitat in many ways, and it's significant. It's very large, so 150 tonnes per hectare is a, a huge amount of soil that's moved. They're changing the structure of that soil, so they're making the soil a lot less compact. Um, one of the biggest issues with um, soil health, of course, is when it can be really heavily compacted by um, artificial sources like um, stock and uh, that sort of thing. But when the lyrebirds forage, they tend to um, decompact the soil, so they fluff it up and they get air into it, and then, of course, water infiltrates. So that's significant. They're bearing significant amounts of litter. So colleagues at La Trobe actually had a look at this in relation to fire, and they found that lyrebirds were significantly impacting the severity and the spread and rate of fire. Um, so that in itself is altering their habitat to suit themselves because obviously if, if a, 
uh, forest is burnt, all the litter layer gets burnt, and that's the habitat for their food resources. So that's very important to them. So, we're still learning a lot about the birds, even though we hear this same thing over and over again. He also, in his attempt to outsing his rivals, incorporates other sounds that he hears in the forest. That was a camera shutter. And now a camera with a motor drive. And now the sounds of foresters and their chainsaws working nearby. But, you see, this segment, it's famous, it's from The Life of Birds, it's from the BBC, it's from David Attenborough, but it was put together with the magic of TV. That is not one bird. It's multiple birds shot across multiple states. And the birds making the man-made sounds, they're in captivity and they were raised in captivity. One of those birds was famous. His name was Chook and he lived at Adelaide Zoo and he only died in the last 10 years. He was a truly remarkable bird. And in this little bit of audio, courtesy of Zoo's SA, you can hear Chook perfectly mimicking human whistles and even someone calling out to him, calling Chook. But Chook was not a wild bird. In fact, no wild bird has been known to copy human-made sounds thus Far, though there are some mysteries, like the flute song of the New England Highlands. You know, you go up to these areas and they're high-altitude forests and quite often dominated by Antarctic beach. So these are, these are trees with massive trunks covered in mosses and ferns and and lichens and, you know, sometimes with these enormous curtains of mosses hanging down from the branches and the, the forest is very like a cathedral and to be up in that sort of environment and then to hear this incredible sound like a, a flute, it's, um, it's quite a remarkable experience. Carol Proberts is a photographer, author and bird guide and an independent scholar. These are Carol's recordings of the flute lyrebird song. She joined forces with Hollis Taylor and Vicky Powers to undertake years of recording and research into the unusual calls and the myth of where they came from. It goes back to uh, 1936. A young woman called Martha Manns, with her family, bought a property in the bush in a remote part of the New England plateau. And not long after they moved there, Martha was woken up in the early hours of the morning before sunrise by what she thought was somebody playing the flute outside her window. So she jumped out of bed and rushed outside to try and find who was, who was playing the flute. All she found was a lyrebird up a tree. So this intrigued her. 
she asked around the, the neighbourhood and what she discovered was that some years earlier, sometime in the 1920s, a neighbouring family had kept a pet liebird that they'd reared from a chick and the, the boy of the family played the flute and every day he would practice. He'd practice his scales and, and some of the popular songs of the day. The Mosquito Dance and Keel Row were two of the songs that he reputedly would play each day. And this lyrebird started to mimic the sound of the flute. Eventually, when it was released back into the bush, that sound of the flute was so... The local lyrebirds took to it and started picking that up. And so that song spread throughout the local lyrebird population. You know, many years later, and in fact to this day, you can still hear that flute-like sound in that area. It's such a fantastic story, but is it fantastical? I mean, could this actually be true? Well, that's the big question. We think that there was a family that had a lyrebird in captivity and... Um, and where one of the family played the flute. So that part of it is quite possibly true. But as to whether that is actually the origin of the flute-like song, well, we actually think that it, it probably isn't. And I think it's most likely that that is a, a naturally occurring dialect that just happens to sound like a flute. And, you know, people being what they are like to explain things by lovely stories and, and because the story fits so well, people like to believe the story. But, in fact, you know, it's, I think it's equally as remarkable, if not more so, that the lyrebirds have developed this incredibly uh, complex and, and beautiful song that, that is all their own, you know. You know, people love to believe that, that we are having an influence on what these wild creatures do. I don't know, it, it boosts the human ego or something to think that they are copying us. But in fact, I think it actually does the lyrebird a, a disservice. For lyrebirds to, to come up with these amazing sounds that they've been doing for probably millennia, you know, their own songs that are incredibly interesting sounds. And it's not mimicry of anything, it's just their own sounds. I think that's quite something to be admired. Over the next couple of weeks here on Off Track, I'll continue to smash through the myths of lyrebirds and try and help you understand what I'm also beginning to 
that the lyrebird is way cooler than any of the myths about flute playing or forestry saws. It's its very own superb thing. The bird looks about suspiciously, then stalks to the mound and begins to sing. This is definitely an animal where truth is stranger than fiction. Suddenly, the tail rises and bends forward till the bird is entirely hidden under a cloud of silver. And in the next episode, we're going on an adventure deep into the Blue Mountains National Park to meet a lyrebird stud muffin and get a lesson in how he sings and dances on a specially built stage. Think Tina Turner and the Nutbush. sexy and complex and, in this case, followed immediately by copulation and some clucks. Humans aren't the only ones who sing and dance or have transmissible culture. I'm Ann Jones and I'll see you next time on Off Track. That's when I'll take you somewhere else.